Welcome to another episode of the Real Talk Podcast. Thank you, everybody, always for listening. Uh, we are now on episode 62. If you haven't listened yet, episode 61, uh, my industry colleague, Kale Goodman, co-founder and CEO of Market Proof Development, definitely check that out. Game-changing technology for industry insiders and those that are interested in new, the new development landscape of New York City. Prior to that, I had my dear friend, San Shodosham and Dan Breitbach, CEO, and founder of Ported.io, one of the first episodes of 2022. They are also a tech startup that is in the real estate world that is making big moves and big waves within our landscape. So definitely check that out as well. And today I am pleased to have on Adam Piore. He is a frequent contributor to The Real Deal, as well as the author of the new up and coming book, The Kings of New York. The book is an insider account of the stories and mayhem that define real estate's modern gilded age. The book features extensive interviews with the titans of New York City, including related Steve Ross, Excel's Gary Barnett, operators of Fortress Investment Group, and more. The book reveals new details of some of the most audacious plays in the history of the city, from Kent Swig's downtown buying spree to related bids for Hudson Yards and the Time Warner Center. You may pre-order the book by searching, quote, the new kings of New York. I will put this link in my show notes. You can also type in the words on Amazon, or you could also Google his website. We'll also, also link his uh, website in my show notes as well. And alternatively, and The Real Deal has been doing a very good job with their marketing of the book, have been bombarded, and I also myself am on the uh, pre-order list. Uh, but you could go to The Real Deal's homepage and you could click through the links to get your book there. Please follow Adam on Twitter at Adam Piore, A-D-A-M-P-I-O-R-E. That's at A-D-A-M-P-I-O-R-E, where you'll see all of his publications on The Real Deal, uh, discussing the New York City real estate landscape and other articles that he writes. So Adam, thank you for joining. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for your time. I'm excited to discuss the book and I'm excited to discuss more about you so that the audience can get to know you. So before we delve into the book and the questions and all of that, let's cue into a section called one word answers. Please answer these. I'm going to give you a couple words. I'm going to give you maybe 13 words. Please answer each word with, I don't know, one to two words, three words, whatever that comes to your mind first. So cue... Game show music. All right. Our first question is New York stance on real estate policy making. <laughs> I don't know. Influenced by lobbyists. Influenced by lobbyists. Number two, New York City, new development. Catering to uh, the world's 0.01% turfs. Yeah. Catering to the richest in the world. Okay. Kent Swig. Fascinating story. We'll go into that more. Billionaire's Row. Homeless Shelter. Harry Mackalow. Old Jews telling jokes. <laughs> he does that on he's he does some really great jokes on that website. 
he's also a stand-up comedian or did he have like a, a comedy line i don't know but he's got like these groucho marx eyebrows and i don't know he just he kind of reminds me of groucho marx but he's also really really ruthless too so there we go number six 157 ugly 432 park avenue giant trash can also ugly russian oligarchs 157 and 432 <laughs> <laughs> dying this is amazing international money and new york city properties lots of it there's lots of international money in new york city properties and uh, it's been an important factor in recent years which is in my book i would say would you say my my answer would if you asked me this would be deposit box oh yeah yeah safe deposit box Number 10, Steven Ross of Related. Pretty good uh, football moves this offseason with the Miami Dolphins. That's right. That's right. Give Tua more weapons. Yeah. Okay. Also, I, I guess I would say from interviewing him a few times for this book, very uh, candid. Mike Stern, JDS. I don't know, Steinway Tower, young guy. Mysterious past, mysterious past. I don't know what he did down in uh, South Florida before he came here, but, and he wouldn't tell me. So that made me really curious. 220 Central Park South. I think a $250 million penthouse, right? Robert A.M. Stern, not as ugly as 157 or 432. Bonus question. Work from home culture. Sweatpants. Let's go over a couple of these. I, I like them. Your response to the question four, Billionaire's Row, a homeless shelter. Can you delve into that for me? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I just think of that because um, it kind of, encap you know, so in my book, I, I was, um, we wanted to follow some, some of the leading moguls at the center of the action through the first two, you know, through the first two decades of the 20th century and through a couple up and down cycles and just kind of. And, and what emerged was, you know, over that 20, 25 year period, because I started really with Time Warner Center and, uh, and the Zeckendorf's first building was just like this fascinating evolution of history. Like when you lay it all out there, even though there's characters in there, you can really see how the attitude towards development and developers has changed, you know, and, and initially when, when the Zeckendorf's built their first building and Steve, Steve Ross built Time Warner Center, you know, there people were looking to developers to help revive the city, you know, and and uh, and then, you know, Bloomberg came in and and it was seen as a, as a pretty good thing. You know, when you put it in historical context, sure. developers have been deemed villains before. But in the in the beginning part of the book, in the beginning part of the century, it was, you know, Steve Ross and Time Warner Center played a pretty important role in revitalizing the area, which was pretty um, fascinating. But then um, and, and then there was a certain point of time when the city was filled with artists and interesting people. And you also had the high line and you had traditional New Yorkers and people moving in and everybody thought it, it was great, but then hypergentrification continued and it went the other way. And a lot of the artists and traditional New Yorkers were priced out of the market and those that remained were pissed off. And so there was a political backlash, which, you know, which, um, really is still kind of going on, but it, I mean, it culminated with the rejection of the Amazon 
deal, which would, would have been, was like would have been a dream come true for the Bloomberg administration, right? Um, but you know that was a major repudiation, and so I really trace that, and you know the homeless shelter on 157 kind of encapsulates that backlash. You know, Bill De Blasio was elected on the tail of two cities, and you know it was just basically a giant fu to to Gary Barnett and sort of the poor door and elitist culture, this homeless shelter. And he had the power to put it through. I mean, right. So that, that's pretty amazing that, um, that Gary Barnett, first of all, was able to build a building that was so tall, you know, it kind of cast shadows over the great meadow when previous projects had been derailed when they tried to do that. But that just goes to show the strength of developers and, and, you know, and then, you know, with the backlash, Amazon was derailed, but before that, the Blasio put a homeless shelter in the, uh, I forget where it is, right? Is it in, right? It's like a half a block away from 157. It's right on the middle. So um, it's kind of an, uh, you know, this exclusivity that became such a part of real estate development in the first couple decades was somewhat repudiated. Right, right. And also it, it made, during the pandemic, it was even worse with the Blasio converting almost all the hotels in that area to homeless shelters, and also to lessen the population of Rikers Island. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, yeah, it, it seems a little aggressive, but, you know, having just written a, like I just excerpted something in my book in Newsweek on Russian oligarchs. Mm-hmm. And when you think about how many Russian oligarchs probably have apartments in one, you know, 157 or 432 Park, it's, it's hard to feel that much sympathy right now <laughs> you're seeing pictures of it yeah no, uh, not at all you're also your other answer that i found interesting was uh steve ross you immediately went to football <laughs> not his real estate empire um, yeah was that is that just because of the current events or is that uh what was the reasoning there yeah i mean well, because I have a, um, like a 13-year-old son who's obsessed with football and he, he updates me on all the free agent moves, okay. which he sees on TikTok. And so, man, they got Tyreek Hill. That, that's Hill. pretty huge, yeah. right? And they got, and they, before that, you know, I was reading ESPN about the offensive line. But so, I mean, I just think that's interesting. And I know that he really wants to have a winning football team. And, uh, and you know, it was cool when I interviewed him. Um, he, uh, one time I... Um, I think I put, I put this in the book, but um, he came in, right? And it was like a week before the NFL draft. And, you know, so I'm sitting there with Joanna Rose, who's the uh, press person at Related. She's at um, Apollo now, I think. And, mm-hmm. and uh, Steve comes in, Steve Ross, and he's like, hold on a sec. I'll be with you in a second. And he goes over to his desk. We're in the Time Warner Center, picks up the phone. And he's like, I told you we should have made that goddamn trade. You know, and then throughout the call, like, you know, his his coach or GM was calling. So it was kind of cool, you know, but um, and, you know, and he's he's very into football, very into Michigan football. So I don't know. I just I mean, I don't really I go to Hudson Yards and Time Warner Center and I think it's pretty interesting. But like, you know, I already finished the book, you know, I'm much more interested in. And then I'm Patriots fan, too. So I'm much more interested in um, what the Dolphins are going to be like. AFC East and AFC South. That's right. What's what's going on with the trade that he was talking about? Do you know, going back to, I mean, this is not a sports podcast, but I'm curious myself. <laughs> yeah. What trade? Oh, the, uh, you know, I don't know who it was. Like, I'm not really, I think he wanted to move up in the draft and, and uh, at the time, 
I think this was a couple of years ago. They really needed a linebacker. Yeah, this was pre to, uh, I forget. I, I don't re never really found out what it was. He, he couldn't tell me because, I mean, I didn't really ask him, but um, it was before the draft. So he wasn't going to share that with me. And then it's not like we're good buddies. Like I didn't sure, see sure. him again and, sure. and I ask him. Although I did see him again, Next but I forgot you know, to ask it, him. Adam Schefter is going to be calling you for the inside scoop. Right. <laughs> Mysterious pass for Michael Stern, JDS. I don't really know either. You know, we try to get him on to one of our future real estate events probably about nine years ago. And uh, apparently, yeah, same thing. They so, Someone knew something about him and they decided not to invite him. Uh, we, we don't know. Hmm. We don't know. Uh, I don't know. I just, you know, he's not really a very big part of my book, but I did talk to him for the book. Sure. And, uh, and I sat down with him and, you know, he was an interesting guy and I'm very, you know, one of the things about writing, you know, I'm, I don't, not employed by the real deal. I, I free, have freelanced for them over the years. Sure. And, and I often, what I have done over the years is I've written these really long profiles of, of moguls, you know, like, and, and people like people at Compass or elsewhere, they want to know how does somebody become a gazillionaire? Like yeah. how, to, how, what are the business moves? So I'm, I'm very interested in the backstories sure. of people and that, that's definitely in my book too, with the the people that I I pro you know chose Ross to focus Harry, on. But yeah. so I was talking to him about his backstory, and there was like you know this he wouldn't tell me. Like I mean, he did tell me when he got into real estate, but he didn't. I can't even remember because it was so long ago. But that that's what what that's what I remember about the interview. Right. Was that uh, he did something down in Miami to make money that was interesting. I don't know. Maybe he. Well, I'm not going to speculate. It's not, in, it's not in real estate though, was it? Yeah, no, it was something else something that else. he didn't want to talk about. Okay. Which I don't know. Maybe he was um, a dog breeder or something. And but uh, but, but I just assumed it was something like totally salacious and interesting. Mm -hmm. So it sticks in my head. Okay. All right. So let's pivot, and we're going to go to warm up questions. The listeners have to get to know you, like you, obviously buy <laughs> okay. your book. But they yeah. buy the book. Wanna, it's great. We want to know more about you first. So, uh, you know, we're going to ask you a couple warm up questions uh, before we delve into the details of your book. So cue game show music. All right. So when you start writing, when, when did you actually start writing for The Real Deal? Uh, well, I've been a journalist for a while, right? So um, I guess I, I covered, um, I worked for a number of newspapers. Like I worked at the Bergen Record, covering Congress. I worked for the Boston Globe. I lived in Cambodia. I freelanced. Then I was at Newsweek for a while, covered 9-11 mm. from ground zero and went to Iraq. And then after I came back from Iraq, I was like really burned out. And so I took some time off and like wrote screenplays, you know, just like I wanted a break from journalism. And then I wanted to go freelance because I because I like telling stories, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, I went to Columbia Journalism School. So I went up to Columbia J School, and there was like an alumni office. This must have been like 2006, mm -hmm. and there was like freelance opportunity for the Real Deal. I mean, they were in their early days. So I just started doing stuff for them, and then you know I, I never have been employed by them, but I, they gave me these long, like I said, 3,000 word profiles, and I would, you know, I wrote about. This guy, Sheldon Solo, who was always suing people. I wrote about Harry Macklow. I wrote about Ken Swig. I wrote about Steve Wickoff. Yeah, I wrote about Malkin. And so that was fun. So, but it was really like, 
you know, I'm not an expert on the, well, I am now that I've written this book and I talked to experts, you know, and I traced things, but I was more interested in, in just kind of the personalities and the wealth generation things. And, you know, I, I feel like, and it was like one of the best stories, you know, like I said, when I was in DC, I'm, I'm revealing my age, but when I was in DC, Monica Lewinsky was going on. And then I was in New York for 9-11 and, and I, I started writing for The Real Deal right before the subprime meltdown. So, wow. uh, you know, I mean, I, I was kind of following that. And then I, I took a job at the Reader's Digest as a features editor, cause I had a kid and it was, and there was like, you know, the country was teetering on the verge of bankruptcy and calamity. And actually Reader's Digest was bankrupt while I was working there. And while I was working there, my old employer Newsweek was sold for a dollar. So it was like Armageddon, you know, but, but uh, after, so I hit out there for a year and then I, it was just like really boring. So then I went back, I quit, even though I had a kid. And then I went back to freelancing and I, and I wrote about like, you know, you mentioned before, before we were talking, I wrote about special servicers and I watched, you know, people kind of cash in and I watched the rebounds, you know, mm -hmm. it's pretty fascinating to watch all that stuff. Right. Really interesting. So I've been writing for them on and off. I write for tons of places. You know, I write for Business Week. I have a contract with Newsweek to do a cover story a month. I write for Columbia Journalism Review. I write science stories. My first book was about characters who were just as interesting as these real estate moguls, but they were like, you know, scientists like trying to regrow people's arms and stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You know. That, you, so you're not just in the world of real estate. You're you you, co you cover news, politics, international relations. I mean, basically you are a jack of all trades of editors. Yeah, I like to, I, I'm a storyteller, right? I like to tell stories, you know? Mm -hmm. I like I like writing and I like bringing people to life and kind of spinning out a good yarn. Tell me about it, Which is why it was fun to write this book. Uh-huh. Because I mean, what better yarn is there than than the adventures that Ken Swig had and yeah. Steve Ross had and the Zekendors had so much and fun. anyone in New York really over the last 30 years. Yeah, yeah so much history. I mean, that's what makes New York City landscape as in general even for us selling new york city interesting just because of the history behind every block every building every developer every owner every past seller um, yeah so forth. right yeah i try i mean what was cool in the book is like so i the main characters i mean i did gary barnett too and a bunch of other people like and steve wickoff but the main sort of narrative touchstones who were woven in and out of the, the narrative the whole time i also got some pretty good access to fortress uh, and the people there, but it was like, you know, Ken Swig who started and then, um, Steve Ross and the Zeckendorfs. And that allowed me to kind of, by doing their backstory, I was able to kind of tell the story of the city, mm -hmm. you know, so Ken Swig, he was working for Harry Macklow, his father-in-law in the, in the eighties, when right after Harry had, uh, knocked down this, he's famous for knocking down these SROs, like in the middle of the night. Right. So he, so Kent Swig, he brought in after he introduced Kent Swig to his daughter. Like after they, he, he married his daughter, he became uh, Harry Macklow's protege and he brought in Kent Swig to run the construction of the millennium, what's now the Millennium Hotel on the site of where they had knocked down those SROs. And they were like right on the edge of the deuce, you know, and, and there was a tax break. So there was a lot of people building. And so, you know, Kent was telling me about, I never heard this term before, but I like it across the street. There was a hot sheet hotel, you know? So like these guys from like New Jersey would bring prostitutes to this hotel hourly. And so there was a lot of riffraff there and they had like a, they 
I don't know. They did ran. They got the police to run some sting operation, and then they had blackmailed the owner of the hotel because he had propositioned a police officer, undercover police officer woman, and you know they 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 kind of drove away the riffraff. And then so that's kind kind of interesting. And then you know like the Zeckendorfs came up. They were working for their dad when their dad did Union Square, and so they're telling me stories like, you know, these guys. They grew up on Park Avenue and, and um, you know, married socialites, you know, but they're like going summoned down by their dad to Union Square when there's like a needle park where people are getting, you know, beaten uh, across the street from the construction site. So it's kind of fun talking to Will about how scared he was, <laughs> you know, but they went down there, you know, and and uh, and yeah, so it was fun. And then and Steve Ross, of course, he he came. He quit his job as a, a tax attorney the day after um, Bobby Kennedy was shot in like 68 and moved to New York because he figured life was too short. And so he got there right in the 70s, right before the city went bankrupt. So, you know, it's pretty cool to talk to him. And then also it was cool to talk to him about one of the things I, I don't know. I don't know what Steve Ross thinks about this, but the real deal has seized on this one quote and they keep emailing it out and tweeting it, you know, which is the quote that Steve told me about, which I hadn't seen anywhere. You know, he was telling me he got a job at Bear Stearns and, uh, and he didn't get along with his boss. That's right. And then his boss like took an idea of his before the investment committee and somebody at the investment committee was like, well, why don't we let, this is a great idea. Why don't we let Steve handle this? And then his boss said, well, I don't have any confidence in Steve. And then so Steve Ross said, well, fuck you. I don't have any confidence in you. And then he got fired and he'd also left another job and so he figured he couldn't get another job on wall street so he borrowed money from his mom and and became a developer you know he knew how to do it because he'd been giving tax clients advice but and 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 then so you know I, his whole origin story of he basically used you know federal subsidized housing he got those contracts as a training ground you know and he was able to get those contracts because he knew how to put together deals he had done tax syndication so he he would find people who were skilled at the things he didn't know how to do and get them to help him, you know? And I think even at the time, I don't know if it's still like this, there was usually in each place where the government was doling out these contracts, they would, they would take the recommendations of some politically connected local, you know, party boss or something. So Steve Ross would, I mean, it was legal, so I don't want it to sound shady, but he would, he would approach whoever these people were and offer to give them a slice of the deal and kind of sell them on his personality and his vision. And then they would put his name in and then he would get the deal, you know? And, and so it's pretty interesting. He learned all that stuff in the seventies. And since he was doing affordable housing, you know, the market was collapsing around him and he was, so anyways, that's just a long way of saying I was like really fascinated when I, even though the, the point of this was to, to spin out a good yarn, I was like really fascinated in, how did New York go from like the Bronx is burning in the seventies to people paying $250 million for a penthouse? Like, how is that even possible? Like, you know, what, what, how did that happen? So that was like a question I, I had and, you know, like some of these developers, well, Kent Swig in particular, but also the, the um, Zach and and other people there, they're students of urban history too. And, and so they were really into talking about that. You know, Joe Rose was pretty interesting. I talked to him. He was, uh, uh, sky on to the that's how you pronounce the word to the rose family dynasty but he went to yale and and harvard and was like an aide to senate senator patrick moynihan and he was you know a policy wonk 
and he was um, Giuliani's planning guy. And he played a key role in getting Steve Ross and uh, related Time Warner Center, which really took them to the next level. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and actually, Millennium Partners had an agreement with the Port Authority to, to do the, uh, you know, to develop Columbus Circle. And then, but they had, nobody had consulted Giuliani and Joe Rose. They had just blown them off. So Giuliani vetoed it. And one of the things that Joe Rose, who was a planning guy, said was, you know, at the time there was all this riffraff in Columbus Circle. I'm just babbling here. Tell me if you want me to, to nope. stop. You can give me a signal. We'll, we'll but there in, in, Colum- in Columbus Circle, there was like, uh, you know, there were stabbings. There was a homeless encampment. There was uh, prostitution. Like it was. And, and, uh, and but Joe Rose knew from this, you know, urban theorist named Holly White that part of the problem was that, you know, when New York City in the 70s, it, they lost 700, with all the white flight and everything, they lost about 700,000 people net, which is the size of a small city. There just wasn't that many people around. And when you have empty spaces, that's when people move in who, and commit crime and stuff. Sure. So this, Holly White had this theory that if you open up spaces, and he, he showed this with Bryant Park, he lowered the hedges, put better lighting in, tried to get something to draw people into the park. If you draw people in, you, what they, you know, if you activate the space, it drives out all the kind of bad elements. Mm-hmm. So Joe Rose really wanted something, and, and Giuliani, who was taking advice from Joe Rose, they wanted something to activate Columbus Circle. And, uh, and you know, a lot of the people who bid, they, when, when they were told you have to find space for jazz at Lincoln Center, they put it in the basement in the corner. But Ross and Himmel, they talked to, to Joe Rose. They, they were willing to do whatever they needed to do. But they also realized that, like, you, you don't just need to draw people into Columbus Circle if you want to have a vertical mall that'll work in New York City, which everybody thought was a crazy idea that would never work. You need to draw people into the mall. You need to activate the mall. And so they had a whole strategy on how to do that. And one of the things they did was they put Jazz at Lincoln Center on a higher level. So then everybody comes down. But And then the main thing, and they also did this for Hudson Yards, which I think is interesting. Ken Himmel knew this, was they also put restaurants. They knew that in suburbia, people will travel many miles for a good restaurant. So they put good restaurants on high floors and then people have to come down. So a lot of interesting stuff from that perspective. I don't know. You know, I also interviewed David Childs about the the architecture of it and stuff. And that was interesting too. You know, I don't know why more people didn't realize that restaurants on a higher floor is an attractive thing or a concept yeah. to have. I mean, if you ever go to other countries around the world, it's not like this is an innovative thing. They have restaurants, you know, higher, you know, higher than third or fourth or fifth floor. Some of them overlook the sky and it's definitely an attraction where people come miles, like you said, miles away or from around the globe to dine at places. Right. Like yeah, I mean, it actually also, the Zeckendorf's talked about the, I mean, and people talk about this, the importance that the Union Square Cafe had in, you know, driving out, turning Union Square into what it is today, mm-hmm. where it used to be this needle park, you know, because sure. again, another restaurant, it was a powerful tool in, in um, and, you know, you also, I mean, the rise of the celebrity chef is a relatively new thing. So maybe people didn't appreciate its power, but yeah, it's a pretty uh, potent tool to, uh, to activate real estate. I remember that an owner in the Zeckendorf Towers, and he was an, he's an NYU undergraduate. Uh, he, he bought 
he said he bought it when the area was a needle park and was not sure if it's even worth it or probably a bad investment, but he bought one anyway. Well, a simple one yeah. overlooks the overlooks the park, but um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of the best apartments right now in this area, right? It's one of the best locations. Yeah. You have six, seven subway lines running right beneath it. And then I would say even during the downturn of 2008, it was still one of the strongest apartments uh, from a rentals perspective or buyers even approaching it to see if the sellers are willing to sell. So a lot of history there, a lot of interesting history in Union Square. The question I have for you as an editor, and I, I suppose every editor will answer this differently, whether it's you or an ex-editor for The Real Deal, like Catherine Clark, who now writes for The Wall Street Journal, or someone in the staff side, like, was, I, I, I might butcher his name, but uh, Keaton Santani or Hyten, H-I-T-A-N. Oh, Hitan. Hitan, yes. Hitan, Hitan yeah. All of these editors, right? They write objectively or subjectively. I think that's up for debate, but they write for the real deal. You write for the real deal and you write things that perhaps may not be the most pleasant things about people you interview, whether it's Harry McAuliffe, Stephen Ross, Donald Trump, Henry Malkin, Ken Swig. I mean, you name it. How do you keep a relationship with these people without pissing them off so that you don't butcher the next time you want to interview them? And I guess this is a question that every editor at Real Deal I'd like to ask. Yeah, well, first of all, the editor is the person who fucks up your copy. <laughs> <laughs> the, the reporter is the guy and the writer is the guy who writes it. And then the editor is the guy who like changes it around, right? Okay. So I was an editor at the Reader's Digest, but I didn't like being an editor. I just needed to make some money to, you know, because I had a new newborn baby and the, the world was teetering on the brink of collapse. Like writing, no, uh, I like would much rather be a journalist and a writer because I got into this job because I like having adventures and I like meeting people and I like seeing seeing places and stuff. But uh, yeah, um, well, let's see. I mean, you just have to be fair. Like, like uh, again, I, I sometimes write for the um, Columbia Journalism Review. And like, so the Wall Street Journal, I wrote, a, I wrote like a huge, very long story about them. And it was, it was kind of a, well, it was about 7,000 words, but it was about a lot. Some of the reporters were pissed off because they felt like the journal, the editors were done, were sanding down the edges of their stories, sure. you know what I mean? But, um, but they have this saying over there, which I have kind of adopted, like, well, the most, the best saying I've learned in recent years, I learned from Ken Swig when I was like, how the hell did you deal with being $2 billion in debt and not you know, how do you, how do you do, deal with that? And he said the best advice he got was respond, don't react. So I often quote that to my kids and to other people. And I try and, you know, don't go, you know, wait till you calm down and then just respond, do not react. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyways, in terms of the Wall Street Journal and in terms of journalism, I just went off on a total tangent there. They say they practice what they call no surprises journalism. So they always just try and let their sources know what's coming. And then the sources can correct it if it's wrong. It's just like you want to be fair. You know what I mean? So, and I try, you know, I am, I've pissed off plenty of people over the course of my career. I'm sure. And, and like when, when I, in the, when I covered Congress, I covered this one Senator who ended up, he was kind of corrupt Senator Robert Torricelli, or I don't know what he did something that got him drummed out, but he was, but uh, he was a Senator for New Jersey. Oh, okay. But he, I forget, somebody bought him suits or something. I forget, Some, something happened. I was in Cambodia at the time and he 
got drummed out. But I was all he was kind of pushing the edges sometimes, and I would always just write about it. Like I remember there was like a Cuban sanctions bill, and he was he was like taking a phone call from his contributors who were Cuban exiles who gave him a lot of money and were telling him what they wanted in the bill. And so he cut me off a bunch of times, but then I'd just be like, okay, fine. You know, you don't have to talk to me, but I'm doing this story anyways. If you want your side in it, you know, here's what it's going to be. And then eventually it never lasted. But in terms of like, you know, I just try and capture reality. Like I'm not trying to make people look bad. Like, and I like to operate with integrity. I like to feel good about myself. You know, like I don't want to be like a weasel. You know, and some journalists are weasels, like, I guess, to get ahead, like, you can be sensationalistic and stuff, but I really, there's not really any benefit to doing that. Like I said, I just like to have adventures. I like to see other worlds. I like to meet new people. So I just try and capture reality, you know, and if I find something negative about some someone that, um, like, I want to put in the story, I'll give them a chance to respond. I mean, Harry Macklow, actually, I didn't interview him for this story because- He didn't want to be interviewed. Uh, is that right? What? He didn't want to be. He was going to interview. I was supposed to interview him and I called him all the time. And one time I even, I live in Connecticut. I got on the train and like his assistant called me when I was like halfway to New York and told me he would had to reschedule. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, so we were going to do the interview, but then like the real deal covered his divorce trial in great detail. And he really didn't like that. <laughs> and so he refused to talk to me and I was, I don't know, I was reaching... But anyways, and I think when I, I wrote a big profile on him a few years back and, and he, I don't think he talked to me, but it was like, like, I mean, I think it's incredibly entertaining. I can't remember whether, well, he got in this feud with his neighbor, Martha Stewart, right? And, and either he pinned, no, she pinned his maintenance guy against the wall and he was blocking her head view with hedges. I don't know. Anyways, it was just kind of embarrassing for both of them but very entertaining and I wanted to put it in the story so I would I would tell them I'd be like hey look sorry man I'm gonna put this in the story if you want to response to it this is what I you know so I try and be upfront. I try and be honest with people mm -hmm. and that's all you can do you know but I, I have to capture reality you know that's mm -hmm. that's my job yeah we know our CEO Rob when we were smaller we had uh one editor come by the real deal who was a real deal editor I think she was a staff member and did a whole day interview with Rob. And then the article was basically just slander of Rob and Compass. And he vowed never mm. to do another interview with the yeah. real deal again. And then I always wonder like, you know, a, a guy like Rob or like, uh, like a company like Compass, like we're gonna be around for a while. I'm sure they're gonna want other opportunities to have people that work for the company come on and speak and be some, you know, some sort of content, at least give some sort of, provide some sort of content. It's, and why do you want to squander that opportunity? Well, I, but, I mean, yeah, I didn't see the, I didn't see the article, but like, was it inaccurate? Was nah, I, I'm like, not sure if it's inaccurate or not. It was 2012 or 13, um, some, yeah. somewhere around that time frame. I mean, the first priority is really to capture reality. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and, and like, you know, this is true in Washington too. It's like, you can call it access journalist, but like, there's plenty of publications to blow smoke up Compass's ass. You know what I mean? That's not what the real deal is about. Like, like that. And, and, and like, you can't run a business like that really. Right. Like people, like, it's one thing to trash an executive at Compass, but it's another thing to um, trash them if it's inaccurate because nobody's going to buy the real deal. So it's like what you're selling is your credibility, 
You know what I mean? So I don't know sometimes, but I don't know anything about the article. I, I, I don't, um, no, so I, were, I can't uh, really comment I, I on the editor it. in the office when the, when this was still happening and we were very small then we were probably a dozen engineers and five brokers. Oh, okay. Yeah. And we, what we was, did, uh, what did she, they say, what did she say? Uh, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't remember right now. I would have to pull it up, but it was, I think what she did was she brought in a lot of other naysayers like element executives uh, oh. and corporate executives and, you know, what do you think about them? Uh, Andrew Heiberger of town at the time, uh, they brought all these yeah. people into kind of uh, negatively hit compass over the head with their comments, but I'm oh, okay. not exactly sure if it was but that whole, I think, well, I think what Rob was really disappointed was, was, you know, the, all the positive things that he wanted them to write about, they kind of glossed over and skipped all of that. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That yeah, happens sometimes. Lost, I mean, lost in translation. Yeah. Between the I mean, and the editor. But I mean, he should have had a better press advisor to advise him what was going to happen. I mean, like, it's not really, that's not really a realistic expectation to do an interview with the real deal. If you read the real deal, and not expect them to talk to your competitors and, and, and capture. But again, I don't know what it said, like, but I often have in the real deal, like, I mean, I wrote about this guy, Sheldon Solo, Sheldon right? Solo? I mean, the Solo, Solo yeah. Residential. Yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, he's, he died now, but he did yeah, nine fifty seven. Yep. I kind of did his origin story, but like, and, and, you know, he had this like media crisis management firm called Finsbury, which is like, and, and it was like, this guy I used to work with at the Bergen record, who was like a star reporter at Bloomberg, but was like Catholic and had like seven kids or something had gone to work for Finsbury. So he had to call me and try and, you know, kind of spin me, but it's like, of course I'm going to write that this guy has 500 lawsuits under, you know, that he sues everybody. That's the most interesting thing about him. Like, and of course I'm going to make fun of it. You know, it's like, so that was not the story. I'm sure Selden Salo would have enjoyed a story about, you know, how smart he is and great. And I did yeah. do his origin story and all that, but I, I also really enjoyed making fun of him for, I think my lead was like, don't call Sheldon Salo litigious. He just might sue you or something like that. Like that was fun, you know, that, but that's fun for everybody. That's the thing. It's like, I'm following my own idea of what's interesting. And if what I think is interesting is probably what you think is interesting. Unless you are Sheldon Solo or work at Compass. That's right. <laughs> yeah. No, we've been but getting, we're not writing for Compass Sheldon Solo or Compass. We're writing by the real deal about stock price, about basically stock price is all they write about, or like agents defecting. Yeah, they love it. They they, they love to. Uh, oh yeah, lots game. of drama like, with Compass, I guess. Oh man, and on the on the, you know they real deal got rid of comments about five years ago. But you know, oh. they, now Instagram is now the thing, right? So you go, you don't, you don't look at the comments on the real deal anymore. You look at Instagram comments, and my goodness, you you get a normal article that talks about uh, De Blasio or um, I don't know uh, any any other real estate current topic versus like a Compass article that comes up. The article, the comments are you know hundreds versus you know a couple, half a dozen. So it's it's, well, it's yeah, uh, I mean it definitely it definitely gains attention to the real deal for sure. Uh, I mean, I've, uh, it's crazy. I, I write, I wrote a lot about COVID for Newsweek uh -huh. and every time they would tweet out something, my story and attach my name to it, I would just, it was just like a pile on from both sides of just every single hysterical, crazy person. Oh my goodness. I can't even, remember. you know, um, yeah. people really enjoy trashing other people and yeah. things on 
social media. Yeah, it's it's brutal. It's brutal. Can't you don't want to go into the rabbit hole there. Let's pivot yeah. and I want to go into the book. So I have okay. a couple of questions regarding this book. You know, I, I think, you know, from what you have led on to the public so far, uh, you talk about the Russian oligarchs. So you know, they have notorious, and this is not just Russians. We have, I mean, Chinese billionaires, you have Indian billionaires. I mean, you name it from every other country that have notoriously parked their money in New York City. You're quoted saying that the Russian, you're quoted saying that real estate here is their quote unquote safe deposit box. So what do you know about this trend and how, how do you discuss this in your book? Yeah, uh, well, actually, I think, you know, maybe Jonathan Miller, the appraiser, might have said that and somehow, but I don't know where I first heard it. I, I think I quote him saying that in the book at some point. But uh, yeah, it's, it's actually pretty fascinating, like, because I, I had written um, for The Real Deal, I had written about uh, money laundering and I had written about ru the Russians coming and, and in my book, I did EB-5 and all this stuff, but there, it's actually a pretty interesting historical story, which is that, um, you know, you had subprime, right? And I mean, people were already coming over because they're like, if you are in a developing country or if you have a lot of money, you want to diversify, right? And you want to park, park it somewhere that's safe. And New York City is relatively stable. We have a rule of law here you can be pretty anonymous about who you are with these shell companies and stuff. You can do that everywhere. But like, you know, they, I just saw something on 60 Minutes last week. They call London, you know, London grad, right? Because there's so many Russian oligarchs park their money there. So there's always been this appeal of it's a safe place to park your money and to get it out of the country and to store value. Uh, because, you know, if you live in El Salvador, the government could collapse and or, you know, or Russia, the ruble could collect, you know, all that stuff. So that's one of the things um, in case you have to flee the country. But what happened that's interesting is um, after the subprime bubble crashed, you know, I talked to Nikki Fields, who's uh, at Sotheby's, and she was sold a bunch of the first apartments at 157. So what happened is, you know, she started getting calls after Lehman went under, you know, People like, I don't know if you remember or were around, but people were like hoarding gold bars, you know, in their bunkers in Wyoming. Like people thought that this like might be the end. So nobody in their right mind was going to buy real estate. But all the people from Bear Stearns and Lehman were desperate to get rid of their real estate. And the market plummeted, you know, and people needed to raise capital. So there was obviously just a, a ton of, you know, distressed sellers um, who were, in high-end real estate, we're contacting Nikki Fields and, and, and I'm sure a, a lot of other people, but there was no buyers, you know, you couldn't even get a loan in the U.S. So what did she do? She, she went abroad. Within like a week or two, she was in Russia. She hooked up with affiliate Sotheby's affiliates around the world and she went to where she knew there was money. Like, you know, the Middle East is a place where there's money because of oil. Russia, there was plenty of money because of oil. China, there's just so much new wealth. And she went around and she, not only did she, she went to the places where rich people would be, like the Sotheby's exhibit and auction where they would have all this art in Shanghai and handed out her card. But she also used, very well connected in New York, right? So she used her banking connections to meet with private bankers in these places too. And the private bankers are the ones who are basically in charge of getting their clients, finding, helping their clients get money out of the country and invest. 
So that that led to a huge over-reliance on foreign money in those years. And and then also you had um, Gary Barnett was, he was the first guy to, like you, you had to go abroad to get foreign money investors also because the banks were in such bad shape and they were so risk averse after subprime. So like, you know, so the first part of the book is very interesting. Subprime, anyone with a pulse could get a, um, a loan and it did really, really fascinating things to asset values and, and had an interesting impact on the market. But then, you know, the second half in recent years is this, this emphasis on foreign money. So that's why you saw the rise. And I talked to the guy, I, I don't know if I've ever actually said his name in recent years, but I guess his name was Nicholas Mastriano, I think, or whatever his name is, the guy who did the EB-5. He discovered that just by talking to somebody, he didn't, he needed money and he was having lunch with somebody and his project was, he wasn't going to be able to get that money because of the bank or something. And somebody mentioned that they had heard of this program, EB-5, where, you know, you, you pay us, you invest a certain amount of money in American things and you get a visa, a green card. So he did it for himself. And then he, he, he parlayed into this huge business and everybody in New York started doing it too, because they needed, they needed to raise funds. Where are they going to get it if they can't get it from the bank, you know? And then, like I said, Gary Barnett, he wanted to reduce, he was far enough along with the site that he had on 157 that he was just going to have a bunch of carrying costs. He, I, I don't know if he already had a crane or whatever, but he, he was, you know, he was going to have to pay taxes at least on, on all those properties. So every day that he didn't build, he was losing money. So he built as soon as he could once he was financially stable and he had this backing from these Middle Eastern sovereign wealth funds, which he just happened to have hooked up. And, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, so he was able to get that out of the ground first. And then, you know, Harry Macklow, when, and I talk about his downfall in the story and I, I got, you know, like I said, I got some great interviews with the guys at Fortress, you know, the guy who got Harry Macklow's call and he's like, wait, what, you want to borrow a billion dollars and you need it next week, you know? Like I, I talked to them and followed that whole thing, but Harry Macklow got this huge portfolio of buildings in the EOP Blackstone deal. And he wanted, you know, he planned to unlock value in them, you know, which is not a bad idea because he's very talented at, at unlock doing that. Value. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, he did it at the GM building. He built the Apple cube. He, and he's got a good eye. He's got this art eye. He, he knew how to, to find ways to, but it, it takes time to do that. And when the market started to turn, where did he go to try and get bailed out and find investors? He went to the Middle East sovereign wealth funds, you know, and, and that, that was sort of his last shot and they did not help him, you know, so they helped Gary Barnett though, you know, he already had a deal in place. Sure. So that's really the story of foreign money. And then, um, you know, and then of course, once you, have those links and you have those connections with private wealth managers uh, and people know that they hear from their friends, you know, but I mean, people have also been, people have been parking cash in the U S for a long time, like in places like Trump tower, but also the condo boom, like, so the Zeckendorf's first building was 515 park Avenue. And that was, you know, kind of set off this new level of luxury. Like their idea was they knew because they had, they owned Brown Harris Stevens, right? Which they own with Ken Swig and Halstead. And they could just ask their brokers, what do you need? So they had their own numbers and those brokers had been, you know, they were selling all the co-ops like at, in, in all the prestigious co-ops. So they right. could say, yeah, we need eight room 
co-ops for right. people with kids. Possibly Nobody, I mean, that's totally counterintuitive, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they, they built condos as co-ops, you know? And that was a, sort of an innovation to build something to compete with the co-ops with that level of luxury, sort of these gated communities in the sky. And then you don't need to get past the co-op boards. So if you're a Joe Lowe, you know, who's looted a few hundred million dollars from the Malaysian treasury and, you know, you buy a condo and you buy some champagne for Paris Hilton, uh, Paris Hilton on her birthday. And I don't, he's in there too. That's really, that was, oh, I that find that very entertaining, that whole story. I talked to Steve Wickoff about his whole experience with Joe Lowe. And, wow. And that was, wow. that was really interesting. Very interesting guy. I, did, did he ever get caught? No, no. Um, I mean, I hate to plug another book, but I really enjoyed the Wall Street Journal guys. They did a story on Joe Lowe, but I think he's like hiding out in China or something. Oh, I see. Um, he plays the hide, yeah. But I mean, what a great character. Like, he's, well, I don't know. He, yeah, he's kind of like a James Bond villain, I guess. Yeah, he is. Maybe not. He is. What you said about Zeckendorf's listening to brokers and what they want, I mean, it's really similar to what uh, we're doing here at Compass, too. You know, Refkin and his team are really listening to what we want, kind of shaping the future of New York brokerage and not really necessarily changing the landscape of the real estate itself, but change, trying to change the business and how it's done. Uh, the Zeckendorf's were very smart in doing that. And and not you know credit to those brokers back in the day that you know knew the demand what what was wrong with the business what was wrong with the industry to create condos and create the Zeckendorf towers and create larger apartments to compete with these co-ops um, very similar business strategy just you know 30 years apart covid you talk about covid in your book and how it's shaped the real estate landscape and i believe is that how the book ends is, is, is what the future will hold with how COVID shaped the industry? And my second part of that question is, you know, the work from home landscape and the office landscape and the office spaces might be vacant. I mean, do you touch on any of that in your book? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I had to go back in, like, I had to go back in and add stuff, you know, like, so I think I filed like my first draft, like, right after Hudson Yards opened after the Amazon thing. And then like the backlash that continued politically for a while, I had to go back and put that in. And then I had to go back and put COVID in. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the thing that's most interesting in regards to COVID is that, um, and, and this is in my book too. I mean, like Kent Swig, his, who's a character in the book and also Steve Wickoff, you know, they, they made a lot of money um, in by buying up downtown office stock that was converted yeah. mm -hmm. into housing. So, I mean, it, you had a similar problem down there after the SNL crisis mm -hmm. to what we're is beginning to unfold now, which is just a huge glut of office space that nobody wants. So I don't know to what extent that can be converted into residential, uh, but, um, you know, that's obviously the biggest problem. Um, and then, you know, it's just, it, it's just, it, it's pretty interesting because COVID kind of, I mean, it looks like New York is doing fine. The residential is doing fine. But, you know, for a while, it kind of gave us a taste of what New York was like in the 70s. You know what I mean? All, all the same problems that we came back from. Like, like I'm saying, like, uh, like I was saying, the problem with Columbus Circle was that 700,000 700, people had left New York and there just wasn't people around. Right. And you saw the same phenomenon happen during COVID. Like everybody had left New York. There wasn't that many people around and people were, 
you know, smashing and grabbing jewelry stores and there was a, this rise in crime and all this stuff because, yeah, you know, that the, these, these lessons that we have learned in the past were playing out again. Right. And then I also think it's interesting just because I spent a lot of time, you know, chronicling the epic of Steve Ross and his rise and near fall and rise and, and uh, how they got Hudson Yards, which also, you know, like they almost lost Time Warner. Millennium was going to get it, then they got it. And they lost Hudson Yards. Tishman Spire won the bidding and then they pulled out and then they got it. So it's kind of a little bit of drama and it's, it's fun to tell that story, like to, you know, trace all the phone calls as this is coming in. You know, Steve Ross was in Asia at the time. Dan Doctorov was involved. But, but anyways, um, one of the things I did was I, I spent a lot of time you know, because Ken Himmel, who's Steve Ross's partner and retail guy, he's done a lot of the famous retail malls around the country. Like he did Copley Place in Boston and the Water Tower in Chicago. He really knows how to how to do this. And so, like I was saying about getting people up, because everybody thought that nobody would go upstairs in a mall in New York City. And you have these examples of malls that haven't done too well down in, uh, you know, around uh, 34th Street. But for Hudson Yards, um, they wanted an anchor tenant at the very top. Right. And, and once they did that, they got Neiman Marcus, right? But, um, and then once they got Neiman Marcus, all these secondary stores came in with, with luxury stuff. Right. So that was like a keystone to their strategy. And so I was trying to get interviews with people who were on the board, Neiman Marcus, who were in the meeting when Himmel and his sidekick gave their pitch. You know what I mean? So this dramatic moment, if you're like into the minutia of Hudson Yards and you're viewing it as like a story, you know, like they really needed to get Neiman Marcus or something and, and it was suspenseful for them. And so they locked it up and then, you know, Neiman Marcus went bankrupt from COVID. So that's, you know, that's, that's interesting and pulled out. Right. So all of that is interesting. So COVID is kind of ties up the loose ends and it's sort of this black swan event that, that happened, you know, 2008 was a black swan event too. So, you know, you get these black swan events in, in real estate, you never know what's going to make the market turn. And then, you know, if you're exposed, it can be calamitous, which is really what this book's about. It's about risk. You know, I mean, the people who make off like bandits are, is fortress, you know, and the reason fortress does that is because they're all about evaluating risk. And it's pretty interesting, you know, uh, Pete Brigger and Steve Stort, two of the main guys in the book who were involved in, in, in Kent Swig, they took over Kent Swig stuff and they took over the, the GM building. They came up during the SNL crisis working in Goldman Sachs and their job was just to like, they call themselves garbage men. They, they would sort through the wreckage and pr pr try and find like sort of the worst case scenario of if they put a value on these things, what's the worst case scenario that they could get for it? You know, and, that, and that's what they did with with uh, the GM building, like the market was still frothy and, and, and there was a bubble and nobody had realized it yet. And so they went in and they 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 had to spend all the do all this due diligence looking at Harry Macklow's assets, who would get what first. And, you know, if everything fell apart, what would they be able to get right. to still be made whole? And that's their whole strategy. You know, uh, they're very cautious and very methodical. And so when subprime happens, they really, you know, they, they just kind of cleaned up, you know, what just because exactly, they're smart. What exactly did Fortress do to make 
uh, I mean, did they, what was their biggest deal that they made money on? Was it the GM building? I mean, what, how, how did they come rise to power and, and what's their influence with Kent Swig? Oh, I, yeah. Um, well, I'm not really, sh- I for- I couldn't tell you the origin story of Fortress right now. I mean, I know Wesley Edens was one of the guys who found it. I, I just know that the guys I talked to, like, you know, after, so Steve Stort then went to, he went to Asia, right? And he was also Donald Trump's banker at one point. Oh, wow. Uh, so he was, he was at, um, what do you call it? Um, after Goldman, he was at, uh, what's that bank that Deutsche Bank, maybe I forget, but you know, he, he, he like, got, he, he had dinner with Donald Trump and Mike Tyson, you know, that was kind of interesting, <laughs> but, uh, but Steve, and, and he worked with somebody named uh, Christopher Flowers, you know, kind of in the Asian financial crisis was kind of sorting through that. Steve, Pete Brigger, who is like, you know, one of the managing directors of, of uh, Fortress, he was, he headed this sort of secretive special situations group in Goldman. Mm-hmm. But again, their whole thing was managing risk, you know? So I don't, in terms of the jam building, that was a good deal for them, I guess, but I think they just were made whole. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it, it was like they had a certain amount of money that they needed to make to pay for the loan. And if it wasn't paid back, they were just going to get it through the GM building. So they basically just made Harry Macklow sell the GM building and pay them back. So I don't really think that, uh, the, the, but the Sheffield, which was, um, yep. that was one of the most profitable buildings that they did. And I talked about this in the book. One of the things that happened is, you know, Kent Swig was, he had all these creditors after him. And somebody got, he had all this, um, there's something called the fulcrum loan. I don't know if you know, but you know, these loans are, are given out in tranches and the people who get the, have the lowest interest rate are the ones that get paid first. Right. And then, so they get paid. And then when the money is, you know, paid, paid out, then whoever has the next loan is the one who can take over the building and foreclose on it. Right. And so it's called the fulcrum loan. So Ken Swig knew that um, one of these loans was, well, this key loan was, was being sold. He didn't know why the, the, this, he didn't know why the holders of the loan were trying to sell it. It turned out they had financial stress too. I think maybe it was Key Bank or something, but he knew that they were going to sell it. And he also knew that Steve Ross and Related wanted to buy it. And he knew that if they bought it, they would have no need for him because they're residential experts. Yeah. So they would just like do anything they could to make him, you know, uh, to make him go bankrupt. So, and he knew the guys at Fortress, not just because they had done business with his, um, with Harry Macklow, but because uh, he knew them socially, you know, they ran the same circles. They had some good mutual friends. They've worked on political campaigns together when they were younger. So he just went in and he asked them to s- sign an NDA and then he, which they were reluctant to do, this is all in the book told in, you know, narrative, razzle-dazzle detail. But anyways, he basically said, once they signed the NDA, NDA, like, okay, I can guarantee you if you if you bid on this and you get it, I'm not going to put it into bankruptcy. So you won't have to worry about that. Right. And, you know, here's the financials. Here's how much I made. Here's how much, once things recover, you can sell these apartments for this is a really good deal. Like you can make all this money and like, I'll just be quiet. And in the me, I'll be the fall guy in the media 
and you guys can push me around and make it look like you're aggressively doing this. Like and, that. and then, you know, that'll help you with the tenants, you know, so that, so that he did the, this whole thing that they did. And then, so then they won it at the auction, you know, mm-hmm. uh, when, when this, when the, the loan went up for the auction and, and um, there was only one other bidder and they didn't bid. I don't know. You can read all about it in the book. It's very dramatic, very dramatic and exciting. But, uh, but anyways, they made a ton of money on that. It was like one of their uh, most um, lucrative investments. Uh, that was right around the time of the financial crisis. So that I think the, the markets themselves were depressed and the, and the deal makers themselves were probably not as uh, bullish on the market. So it's an interesting time. That right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, but also they, they had to worry about if they bought it, Kent Swig could put it in bankruptcy. And then just like the way that these tranches work, like, I don't know. I forget. I, I can't go. The details are in the book, but it is pretty interesting, pretty complicated, but pretty interesting. And then there's also, you know, fascinating story details. Like they, the, the fortress people thought it would be funny to put, to go around the entire hotel or wherever it was where the auction was and find all the ice buckets and line them up in the back of the room. Because, you know, Kent Swig at that point was famous for, he was like, attacked and clubbed with an ice bucket by Yair Levy who lost his shit like a week before the you know he couldn't deal a week before the Lehman collapse and attacked Ken Swig with an ice bucket and then like it came out and everybody you know just ran with it because it was like what you thought was going on behind the scenes but you didn't really know and then you know here's this great anecdote of like somebody clubbing their partner with an ice bucket which I don't think Kent appreciated very much when no. like curb nicknamed him buckethead and, but, but, and the fortress guys put ice buckets there they thought it'd be funny <laughs> what what's he doing now fast forward to today you don't really hear much about him uh yeah he he runs halstead right he he runs oh, yeah, halstead and, yeah, and he still owns stevens now because halstead no longer exists wait where oh yeah it's, oh, so he runs brown harris stevens along with the zeckendorfs like I don't think this is main problem. I don't know if they're even speaking to each other anymore. Like I, I couldn't really confirm. I heard all these rumors about the Seckendorf brothers not speaking to each other, Ken Swig not talking to them, but I couldn't confirm anything. So it's just like buzz and rumor. What? Lots of drama there. I don't know why would they not get along. I don't know. I uh, well, I think in, in the case of Kent Swig, and again, I don't know, they they may have reconciled, but uh Kent he bought he I don't know, before he went bankrupt or he didn't go bankrupt, sorry. I take, before he, um, all, everything was frozen and he had to avoid going bankrupt and, and he was you know, in serious jeopardy. He bought Harry Helmsley's old brokerage firm. And I don't know, I think there was something. You know, you should probably, uh, I, I have no idea what I'm talking about. So <laughs> this is all just rumor and speculation. So right, no worries, uh, some of it is in the book, you know, but, um, but uh, but the point is, he's they're they're still partners, so they probably get along, and they own Brown Harris Stevens and Halstead, and um, and he you know gives a lot of talks to the brokers. He rallies them. Good, good. He's a big research guy. He you know he likes the numbers, so he'll share those with his crew, I guess, and and advise on strategy. And then his family still owns a huge portfolio of real estate in New York and elsewhere. They own the W R Grace building. They did at least. And so he does that and he, and he was getting back into investing uh, and buying buildings. I mean, he really did remarkably pay everybody back, you know, in part because of the Sheffield deal and everything. And he, 
considers it a matter of pride that he didn't go bankrupt and that he made everybody whole. Mm -hmm. And he claims that that has brought him a lot of credibility with his lenders, um, but he just has no desire to go into the compete in the ultra high end of the market anymore. Right. Um, it's hard to say, but you know, he's still, yeah, he's I also book. saw he, he's got some sort of cryptocurrency thing going or something. <laughs> he, he, has crypto, he has a crypto, the Kentwood crypto as well. Yeah. I mean, he's still, uh, yeah, he's still well-connected and smart and rich. So I'm sure he's busy. And I think, you know, he, he found love again. I think he's remarried. Um, To to wrap up, I know you're a busy guy, so I'm not going to keep you too long here. Uh, Anything more about the book that uh, readers should know about that I didn't ask perhaps because we haven't read it yet. Uh, Anything that you want to share or highlight? Uh, it's just a great yarn, you know, like, like I said, um, yarn, I'm interested yarn. in the question of, of how New York transformed and why it transformed. And, you know, and, and there's a bunch of, you know, interesting political and policy things in there. But really what I wanted to do was to tell good stories, to humanize, to show what it's like to operate at the highest levels of the industry, you know, building these things. So you have Steve Ross and the Zeckendorfs and Gary Barnett and plenty of examples of, of success, you know, and how they did it. And, uh, you know, I tried with, I I had in mind the whole time, you know, people who want to might be real estate brokers now, like some of these guys, you know, were, and, and want to be developers. Um, and I, so I wanted to get into, you know, how that's done, how these people think, you know, the lessons they've learned but I wanted to tell it in a, a good story, like, you know, Michael Lewis or Barbarians at the Gate type story. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, I tried to create drama, I mean, or capture drama when there really was drama. And Kent Swig was, you know, people asked, like, why are you writing about Kent Swig? Like, he got wiped out. He's not a factor anymore. But really, like, I just was really fascinated. What, you know, what is that like to grow up really rich, a son of privilege, go to Brown and be real estate royalty living in the most prestigious co-op in the city. And then, you know, get attacked by your partner, divorced from your wife, you know, attacked by your ruthless former, yeah, attacked by like your infamously ruthless uh, former father-in-law who seems to be, you know, angry at you you are like, uh, you know, I don't know, your credit cards are frozen. I mean, like one, <laughs> one story Kent told me was that um, his bank, one of his bankers called and was like, meet me on this such and such a corner. And Kent was like, oh, great. What now? Okay. Respond, don't react. Okay. What now? And then he goes and the guy hands him a credit card and it's like, we're just really concerned about whether you have enough food. So just go to Trader Joe's and pick up, you know, as much groceries as you, as you need. Yeah. So, um, Yeah. So that, and then I just asked like, what lessons did he learn? You know, he was telling me about some of the, you know, how proud he was of his son, for instance, who didn't want him to be embarrassed and was trying to hand him a credit card under the table, even though Ken already had the the meal covered, but just like, it's just, I wanted to get the human component of this thing, you know, and, and I, and I wanted to get the human component of Steve Ross and, you know, everybody. Yeah. And there's like, you know, there's poignant moments, 9-11, you know, people told me all their stories about that, but also, you know, just how did we go from like, 
developers being heroes to people being so pissed off at developers. Sure. And it's a, it's a very, it's very clear when you read the book and I'm not even speculating, I'm just laying out the watersheds of what happened. It's like, if you take all the watersheds of New York real estate during the last 25 years and you weave them together into a narrative with interesting characters, everything makes sense. And, you know, so I just, I felt like I, the book re reporting it, but I've also heard this when people read it, it gives you a really good understanding of, you know, just a lot, you know, 360 degrees on how we got where we are. And, and if you want to understand the New York City real estate market, I'm hoping it'll become an essential read. I completely agree with you. One of the reasons why I love practicing in real estate in New York City out of all areas, I could have been a real estate broker in Denver for all you know, but uh, New York City has such in-depth layers, multiple layers of personalities, histories, notable figures, just the story behind every building is just is phenomenal. And yeah, the players, the personalities, the the ups and downs in the cyclical market that every developer owner has withstood trial and tribulations that they have gone through to hold these assets and develop these assets. It's just all the stories are all so remarkable. If you could, you know, one of the reasons why I have a podcast is, is that is, is why not bring on all of these people onto a platform, a digital platform. And so that their younger generations can listen to it to industry insiders can listen to it because they all deserve to be heard, at least just from the experience that they've they have it's, it's which is unique more unique than any other city i think in the united states if you could bring on or write about future players that you did not mention in this book i mean do you have any players that you come you know that that brings you to mind i know you talked you said that mike stern wouldn't really talk about the past but let's just say someone that you haven't spoken to yet i mean there's a lot of players right there's you know, brokers, there's other developers, there's multi-generational landlords like uh, like BLDG, Lloyd Goldman, or an older developer like Elliot Spitzer's, Elliot Spitzer and his, his family, or, you know, anyone else comes to mind to you? In terms of, uh, well, I tried to interview everyone who was interesting in my book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know, I'd love to interview, I'd love to hear an interview with Joe Lowe <laughs> or, uh, or, or like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm kind of interested in, in, um, one thing I didn't really get into that much, although I did get into it a little bit is like, how do you capture like zeitgeist and buzz? Like, so, you know, that, that I did get into that a little bit, but I, I didn't, wasn't able to talk to, um, Michael Chavo, mm -hmm. right. Cause he was like, under indictment for tax evasion or something at art, art, know, art some, like something bad was happening art, but yes he like didn't pay art in a 1031 exchange type asset exchange form to the federal government and whatever money he made that was in a fixed value asset gain was not taxed and i think that that's why he was under investigation but he yeah, yeah like I, I would like to I, I would like to talk to him or like ab rosen just in terms of like because i just watched that netflix um series inventing anna mm -hmm. you know which is about that socialite yep. and you know she was like a total fraud but it's like so i was interested like how do you transform new york you know from like the bronx is burning into 250 million dollar apartments like that's interesting and i i covered that and resilience and all that and how do you become a gazillionaire and all that but i'm also interested in how you take something that's really not that interesting and convince everybody it is 
mm-hmm. the new thing mm-hmm. and create buzz. And I mean, Harry Macklow did that, you know, is what we just talked about that with like quote unquote unlocking value, but you did that with the GM building, but right? he's not really a, he's not really a hipster, What? Yeah. I mean, that's what he did with What'd the you GM say? building, right? He did that area was yeah. not very attractive at all. And he got the Apple cube there. He built the, the underground, built out the Apple store underground and made it classy office building. Yeah. But he's, like I said, yeah, he's not really a hipster. Like uh, he's not going to get hipsters to like his, uh, you know, like A.B. Rosen or, or Michael Chabot. <laughs> I would love to listen to a story. I'm surprised he wouldn't want to, I mean, I'm sure you'd be open to it. He seems to be a very uh, outwardly PR type candidate. So very smooth talker. I, I would say he was one of the best talkers at the multifamily summit back in the day. He was one of the guests as well. Yeah. Very no, I mean, I talked to a lot of people. I, I, his charisma is legendary. And I, I, that was the main Newman. reason I wanted to talk to him. But he reminds, he reminds me of Adam Newman of WeWork. Oh, yeah. Apparently. Yeah, I mean, I, I did. Del- I tried. To- yeah. What? They're is, both uh, Israelis. Yeah. Harry Macklow's Israeli? No, no, no. I'm talking about Adam Newman and, um, and uh, Michael Chabot. Oh, okay. Oh, right, right. Yeah. No, I was saying I, I was interested in, in Harry Macklow because of his charisma. And I talked to people about what it was about his charisma right. that, that allowed him to close these deals and why everybody supposedly liked him. Mm. Uh, you know, his charm, right? And a lot of it has to do with his sense of humor, his self-deprecating thing. But he's also very intelligent, you know, but um, so. Apparently he has some good one-liners, according to the New York Post, during the uh, the trial that... uh. Oh yeah, right. About that, that instead of yeah. an interview was more. But he like seems to be comedy line. <laughs> he seems to be pretty thin-skinned, though. If he wouldn't talk to me because of his <laughs> divorce trial, you know what I mean? I mean, I mean, he was really busy. I kept catching him in like Paris and London and stuff. But you have his but, number. Uh, yeah, I got his number. Yeah, and people kept telling me that that he would respect it if I kept pestering him. You know, so I tried to be aggressive, but eventually I just like really didn't care. You know, I was like, I was like, enough, right? Yeah, the world yeah. of real estate. Keep pounding the phones. Well, Adam, I appreciate your yeah. time. Thank you so much for sharing so much information about your book. Again, to the listeners, the link to the book, the link to his website will be found in my show notes. Please also follow him again on Twitter at Adam A D A M P I O R E to subscribe to his future stories and uh, any questions feel free to send them an email, DM, it's all in the show notes. Adam, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, Okay, thank you. Best of luck with the sale of your book. I am anticipating it and I'm looking forward to reading it.